1: Welcome to the Resident Evil Lorecast, the podcast that will explore the various mediums and lore of the Resident Evil franchise, such as the video games, movies, novels, and more. And here are your hosts, Ariel, Daniel, and Aaron. Got something that might interest (laughs) you. And welcome back to the Resident Evil Lorecast. I'm your host, Aaron. And as always, joining me is our fellow hosts, Ariel Hello. And Daniel. Hi there. And today, we're going to be talking RE5 characters and BOWs. Yeah, my favorite. With a little sprinkle of Easter eggs in there. (laughs) Just a little sprinkle. Just a little sprinkle. Only, you know, three and a half pages worth.
0: (laughs) No, 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 nothing. Nothing big.
1: So, starting us off, what's up first?
0: Well, I was going to go on a documentary about butterflies Oh, no, not that's
1: the wrong podcast. Oh, round podcast? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't even think we have one of those.
0: <laughs> what about rainbows?
1: Nope, Ari, that's this one. You uh-huh. just make them together and you have a new podcast. <laughs>
0: yeah, butterfly rainbows.
1: I believe that's called the Reading Rainbow Podcast, and uh, we don't have the licensing agreement for that. I would like
2: to, though.
0: <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, for real. Uh got some characters.
1: Dun, dun, dun.
0: So, we've already talked over Chris.
1: Yeah, there's we've talked him into a hole. So, let's start with Sheva.
0: Uh. Sheva Alomar and Daniel. Her blood type is AB positive. Yeah, back to blood types. We don't yeah. get a
2: whole lot of those ABs, I've noticed. Well, we also don't get a lot of t- negatives or positives. Mm-mm. It's usually just straight letters. That's it. Yeah.
0: It says here, which is completely irrelevant, but I just want to bring this up. She's 115 pounds. And that's all great, but those boobs suggest otherwise.
2: (laughs) What is her height, does it say?
0: Five foot five. I'm taller. (laughs) (laughs) I am not. So, (laughs) let's get into this. She is an agent for the Bioterrorism Security Assessment Alliance. Mouthful. Operating as part of its West African branch, she was assigned to the current mission to assist Chris, who was unfamiliar with the area. A versatile fighter with extensive experience, her ability to use firearms is on par with Chris. She is much smaller and more flexible, enabling her to perform certain maneuvers that Chris can't. In turn... This allows Chris to throw her up to high ledges or over large gaps in order to reach areas or objectives that a lone operator couldn't reach. I remember all that fun stuff. <laughs> getting thrown up.
1: Sheva! You know, the one thing I really wish I would have seen is Sheva throwing Chris up. She just
2: needs a spool shirt like his <laughs> boulder punching shirt. And probably she could. You guys yeah. can buy that last week's podcast. <laughs>
0: Sheva grew up in West African region which was associated with guerrilla fighters operating against the national government some 80% of the town's population was employed by Umbrella's number 57 plant who provided wages which while still low by national standards were steady enough for Sheva's family to live on comfortably around 1994 when Sheva was only 8 years old The Umbrella plant suffered a containment failure and the locals who had unknowingly been aiding in the development began rampaging around the plant. With help from the army, Umbrella's anti-BOW soldiers destroyed the factory to rid the bioweapons and massacred the town to silence witnesses. Sheva survived the attack and was taken in by her uncle, who hoped for compensation to support her and his seven children, but was offered nothing kind of sad. Yeah. So Sheba ran away from her girl's home due to malnutrition and journeyed back to her home. On her way, she was picked up by a convoy of guerrilla fighters who believed the containment failure at the umbrella plant was deliberate in order to test out their completed bio weapons. Over the next seven years, Sheba lived with the guerrillas, fulfilling menial roles such as laundry and, when older, obtaining materials from the nearby town. Around the year 2001 and at the age of 15, Sheva was approached by a government agent who revealed to her that the guerrillas were attempting to purchase bioweapons from Umbrella in their fight against the government. At a church, he introduced Sheva to an American official who offered her and the guerrillas amnesty if she gave them proof of the bioweapons deal and a means of capturing the guerrillas. Sheva agreed to do so and three days later unlocked the door to their compound and used a recording at the meeting. Everyone in the compound was immediately arrested and taken to the American consulate and true to the official's word, everyone but the bioweapons dealer was released. Sheva was offered a new life in the United States and handed a passport and a seat on a private jet with the official as her legal guardian. So that's some interesting stuff about her background.
1: She gets a happy ending in that which is I'm so thrilled for. Mhm.
0: So, Sheva adapted to life in the United States quickly and mastered English within 6 months. 2 years later, Sheva enrolled in a university and upon passing was recommended a career in the Bioterrorism Security Assessment Alliance by the official, who had recently been founded to tackle the use of Umbrella's bioweapons in terrorism following its collapse. Sheva was assigned to Josh Stone's unit for eight months for training. Upon completion of her training, the BSAA chose her to become an agent due to her prior experience in infiltrating while smuggling materials for the guerrillas. And the rest of the information is her in the game. So we don't need to cover that.
1: So before we go any further, I just want to talk about the fact that for the first time in forever, we have a character that has absolutely no military background being accepted into a special forces agency.
2: She's that good?
1: Well, she had to be. I mean, being a part of a guerrilla warfare unit I mean she was secret snake and everything and you know constantly getting supplies under you know the veil of night I'm sure so she's really good at stealth and we do get to see some of that during the gameplay which is pretty cool with her but I really wish we would have seen more of that
0: we had to stare at Chris the whole time
1: of course (laughs)
0: The Hunk Chris
1: (laughs) There's only one hunk
0: That's his name I'm saying he's a hunk Not hunk Anyways So The next character I have on my list is Albert Wesker Which we've basically covered What he's been doing in the background Mm. So I'm gonna skip him And Jill Because we discovered what brought her to five in the last Mm -hmm. episode with the plot. So I'm also not going to go over Jill. So let's get to Josh Stone. Josh Stone is a member of the BSAA West Africa Division. Although upon further inspection, Stone was the captain of the first team. Sheva joined with the BSAA and trained her for eight months, like I just recently said with Sheva. After the training was complete, Sheva and Josh developed an extremely close relationship in which he refers to her as the little sister of the team. Uh, that is what I have on him. Not too much information.
1: He's, he's a pretty straightforward character. He's you a know, higher up within the BSAA and trains people. Yeah. And he called Shiva his little sister.
0: Thank you for that recap. So. <laughs> next, we're going to go to Excella. <laughs> Excella Gione was a British-Italian businesswoman. She is known for her leadership of Tricel. And her involvement in Tricel's bioweapons weapons program. And she was killed during the... Autonomous zone incident when she was experimented on against her will by her business partner, Wesker.
1: Huh, Wesker experimenting on someone beyond their will? Uh, that doesn't sound like Wesker.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, Wesker's a good guy. Yeah, he's an no. owl. Just refer to the movie. <laughs> good guy, Wesker. Good guy, Wesker. Excella was born into the Giones, a dynasty of wealthy Italian merchants. Through a grandmother, she was also closely related to the British Travis family who had founded Tricel in the years before her birth. Academically impressive, she was elevated to university at a young age and graduated with a bachelor's majoring in genetic engineering.
1: So she has a bachelor's and is now the CEO of Tricell.
0: That doesn't make sense. (laughs) Well, it's what they say. So. With her family connections, she was recruited into Tricell's pharmaceutical division, though was otherwise a minor figure in company politics. There you go.
1: Ah, there we go.
0: This changed not long after being approached by Wesker, a former umbrella. Virologist. Wesker saw her as a worthy business partner to maintain a stake in the bioweapons industry and provided her with research data on the T-virus project he had both personal experience of and through access to Umbrella Archives. Wesker's approach took place as the Umbrella Corps collapsed into financial ruin and With it, Tricell's bioweapons research was capable of not only surpassing Umbrella's own, but replacing its market share. With greater respect, as an up-and-coming manager, she was put in charge of the entire bioweapons research division. Around this time, Tricell had begun secret dealings with Morgan Lansdale, resulting in the T-Abyss project. In 2005, Tricell agent Jessica Sherwatt Recovered a sample of the virus from the Queen Zenobia. And then the rest of the information I have is her in the game. So that is Excella.
1: I find it very interesting how they played into that bachelor's degree background where she was just a nobody. And then all of a sudden you have all this information on the T-Virus and all these other things. Wow, now you're an incredible somebody. So essentially she rose to the ranks because of Wesker's influence. Uh, Oh, and we get to see this play out towards the end of the game where she basically made to look like a punk in front of Wesker.
0: As it should be, (laughs) to be honest. I mean, he was supposed to be and is the evil, truly evil character.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: I, I, actually loved how it showed when he was like no you're never going to be beside me
1: yeah I I love that twist and knowing her background now it makes so much more sense why she just basically crumbled and collapsed upon that realization because he built her into what he needed her to be and tore her down in the same amount of time (laughs) truly a monster
0: So, the next character I have is Ricardo Irving.
1: An annoying
2: character.
0: (laughs) Yeah. He was also known as the Merchant of Death and was an American black market dealer of bioweapons who gained a global presence in the aftermath of the Grisia Panic. Considered to be a Mammonite, Irving continued his black market dealings despite being the director of the Kijuju oil field owned by Tricell Africa. Owned by Tricell Africa's resource development division, he was a suspected dealer for some time when the BSAA confirmed his presence in Kijuju, setting off a major operation to bring down his dealings. And what became known as the Gijuju Autonomous Zone Incident.
1: The Kazi. The Kazi incident.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Where's the effect? So, ah. so he is suspected by the BSAA of having been in Raccoon City during the 1998 Raccoon City destruction incident though any evidence confirming this and what he was doing there was lost with the city. Irving's activities in the bioweapons black market date back at least as far as the mid 2000s, by which point he was a senior partner in TriCell's illegal bioweapons research led by Excella and former Umbrella USA researcher Albert Wesker. Irving's role in the operation was was as the dealer. He sold bioweaponry to terrorist groups across the world with profits being invested in bioweapons development and footage of the terror attacks used to evaluate the effectiveness of existing BOWs. His legitimate and wealthy business ties not only gave him a reason for traveling across the world should he be investigated, but in being connected and being unconnected to Trisols pharmaceuticals division, the BSA was fooled into thinking Irving's connection to the company was coincidental. In 2006, Irving was contacted by Patrick, the butler of Dr. Oswald Spencer. Dr. Spencer was close to death and requested to meet with Wesker, having been aware that Irving had had dealings with Ada Wong, who could pass on the invitation.
1: The bad guys ring. Holy cow. All these connections.
0: I know. And then the rest was his involvement in the video game.
1: So, during the Basically, the you know the judicial hearings against Umbrella. It sounds like Wesker was selling off or giving off info to Tricell during you know to get get his leverage somewhere else.
2: Umbrella 2.0.
1: Umbrella 2.0. That's right. That's exactly where I was going with it. <laughs> so he was attempting to take over Trisell in a similar way that he took over Umbrella. But Umbrella was a failed attempt. So by working through this network of arms dealers and weapons dealers and, you know, scientists for the opposite team, he was able to secure his own leverage points. And it's all due to literally just the T-virus and minor data involving other viruses. When you think about that, You have to appreciate how incredibly snaky, conniving, and brilliant Wesker truly is. He was always like 20 steps ahead of everyone. Until this game. Until this game.
0: (laughs) I still think he was still 20 steps ahead. Mm. I really do. Sorry, Daniel, but I don't think he died.
2: Well, there could have been a Wesker clone in the lab.
1: Mm-hmm. It's Jake. Jake's the Wesker clone. But anyway, so I just wanted to point that out, that this whole time, Wesker has been puppeteering everyone in all directions.
0: So the next character I have is Captain Dan DeChant. DeChant served in the U.S. Army and joined a private security contractor in Africa, there, he became aware about the risks that bioterrorism posed to the continent firsthand. This experience led him joining the BSAA's West African branch. Unfortunately, the chant passed away in the game.
1: Is the dead?
0: Oh my god, don't be so <laughs> morbid.
1: I'm sorry. It was there. The joke was there. Let's go to Dave. <laughs> I just love all these extremely creative names. And then there's Dave.
0: <laughs> I don't know. Dan is pretty much like a Dave.
1: Uh, it's Dan. You know, it's not one of those you hear all the time. It's just, you hear it and you're like, oh, okay. it, Dan. Yeah, it goes in one ear and out the other. You're like, ah. Eh. But Dave, it just has this stop-you-in-your-place kind of vibe for me.
0: Dave Johnson was a soldier in the BSAA, serving as a marksman for Captain Josh Stone's Delta team. Prior to his BSAA career, Johnson was an off-road rally driver participating in at least one race at the Rally World Championship. In the BSAA, he demonstrated expertise as a sharpshooter and was provided with a German semi-automatic sniper rifle and H&K and that is about it
1: on Dave love how he was army then he was just this super awesome driver now he's a sniper yeah Dave's awesome Dave's not here man
0: next is Kirk Matheson Kirk Hattrick Matheson was a helicopter pilot who served the BSAA as part of its air support platoon. In 2005, Matheson was sent to rescue the BSAA operators named Chris and Jill from a BOW called the Malakota on the Queen Zenobia, providing them with air support. With his help, the two managed to subdue the beast afterward, he flew them to the remains of the Queen Dido, and returned them to the BSAA headquarters. So, in the game, he... In Resident Evil 5, he provided air support for the BSAA operators. Chris and Sheva. During the incident. And, unfortunately, his helicopter was attacked by flying BOWs, causing him to crash... So unfortunately he is dead. You
1: are dead. So the life expectancy of our pilots that work with the BSA or the government agents in direct aid to BOWs y'all yep. dead all of them always.
0: So next we have Reynard Fisher.
1: Can we can we stop for a minute and just just put yourself in the shoes of a pilot? And you're told you're going to go on a Top secret mission To Africa Just after Zenobia Incident And then the Spain incident In RE4 Just get told you're going to go in to support BOWs, what would your first answer be?
0: Hell yeah, brother. Mm -mm.
2: (laughs) It depends on how much you're told because it could be a need-to-know basis. You don't know about this incident. Even though you're in the BSAA, you don't know about this because you're not directly involved.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: And, I mean, he kind of signed up for the job so he'd know the risk. Unfortunately, I don't like, you know, seeing pilots die, but... I'm going to have to...
1: I'm going to hard pass on this one. No, I'm not piloting that. Mm -mm. Mm -mm.
0: (laughs) Probably no,
2: too, because I don't know how to pilot anything. so (laughs)
1: same so anyway sorry for interrupting
0: back to Fisher he once worked for the Ministry of National Security of an African country experienced in infiltration he was hired by the BSA as an infiltration agent he was then sent within the autonomous zone Where he was to observe for signs of bioterrorism, bioterrorist activity in the country, which was still recovering from a civil war. Among the spies under his employ as a local butcher, they were able to hold meetings at a shop so as not to arouse suspicion. So, this is basically the guy in Startup Five that gives you your firearms. That he smuggled in and then subsequently got killed by the executioner. So,
1: we're going to talk about him when we get to Easter eggs.
0: Reynard
1: Fisher. Rest in peace.
0: So, next I have Doug. Doug.
1: This is another one. Doug. <laughs> Doug and Dave.
0: He is a BSAA pilot. There we go again. So, basically, he was ordered by Delta Team Captain Josh Stone to pick him and Jill up. So, he finally arrived in time to save the two from a number of heavily armed machini. after being forced to take a detour to avoid the attacking flying B.O.W.s. Doug is shown to have a laid-back and sarcastic personality even during times of danger as well as a flirt. When he first contacted Josh, he asked if he was having fun. Upon being told by Josh he was bringing a lady to their rendezvous, he immediately asked if she was cute. Upon learning it was none other than Jill Valentine, Doug began flirting with her whenever he contacted them via radio. Jill eventually stated that Doug is quite the character.
1: Doug had a chance with Jill.
0: (laughs) Oh boy. She has her heart set on Chris. Prove me wrong. So, the last character I have is Allison, which is not by any means important to the story, but I want to throw her in there. Because she is the one in sort of the beginning, after you defeat that massive and you're going through the city. She's the one that comes over by the balcony. Doesn't she ask for help?
2: Yeah, she says to help and then she gets pulled in by another Yeah, that's what I thought.
0: And she is the one that's calling out for help but then gets pulled in
1: by a Majini. (laughs) So wait, that's her entire story? Yeah. Well, she attacks you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, basically. I just wanted to throw her in there because I remembered from the beginning that when she's like, help,
1: help. I love the fact that None of the other NPCs Have ever been given names Like like The civilians that are getting attacked by zombies None of them have ever been given names In the game Okay, Unless they played a major plot point for the game Then you have this one That has absolutely no plot driven point We honestly could have done Without her in the game And it wouldn't have changed the vibe at all She gets a name
2: well, and I almost wonder, too, if she, like one of the other guys that got the parasite put into his mouth, if she got changed after she got pulled into the room, because mm. we saw it can quickly change them.
1: Mm-hmm. So while we're done with characters, we still have B.O.W.'s and Easter eggs to go over. So we'll go after those after our midbreak. <laughs> so here we are in the middle of the show. Feels awful, middle in here.
0: <laughs> I'm done with you.
1: So the first thing we have to do is, of course, as always, we need to thank our lovely, wonderful patrons like Anthony Bellotti, Remington Cloutier, Chris Slate, and Oh Saint. <laughs> no, on serious note, thank you all. You're all fantastic. You're wonderful. And everyone listening is fantastic and wonderful. You know, I keep getting messages on Twitter and I love it. I love when you guys tag us and stuff because I get to go see all the cool stuff you guys do. And we we just had somebody the other day. They were like, I didn't expect you to follow me. Of course, I'm going to follow you. I want to keep up to date on everything you guys got to share, especially if you're RE fans. I mean, come on. Our, we know RE fans post some of the coolest shit like
2: yeah come to the discord (laughs) show us as well there's a lot of discord or re discord fans in there
1: yeah so i mean it's fantastic it's wonderful we want to build this wonderful community where we can all talk and you know talk re and we do that by you guys liking and you know reviewing the show and you know sharing with friends and sharing with family and your worst enemies you know (laughs) By sharing and leaving comments And everything else, it helps us grow It helps us grow our lovely community And we can't thank you all enough So thank you
0: Real quick, I just Imagine Like, someone going up to somebody I really fucking hate you (laughs) But listen to this podcast Listen
1: to this podcast, okay, do me a favor and listen to this podcast But I still fucking hate you
0: (laughs) But on that note, thank you patrons and thank you listeners Mm
1: -hmm. yeah we definitely appreciate it yes so with all that being said it's time for us to talk some merchant news Danny what do you got oh we're supposed to bring something Uh,
2: we do this every week (laughs) we do (laughs) I forgot all right so in keeping with the theme on tpublic.com I found a Resident Evil t-shirt of Sheva Alomar. And of course she is holding a shotgun, looks like. Looks like she is holding a shotgun. And you can get it in different colors, of course, different sizes. It runs $22, looks like, before shipping. So all you have to do is go to tpublic.com and look up Sheva Alomar Resident Evil t-shirt. I think it's Novoski. It's N-A-U-M-O-V-S-K-I on Tee Public, And that'll get you to the Sheva Alomar shirt. But he also looks like he has masks, mugs, and other various things in this exact image. <laughs> so you can find on the Discord. It is pretty cool because I do like Sheva. so. And it is in her normal clothing that she starts <laughs> out in her outfit in the game. Which is fine with me.
0: Much to Daniel's chagrin. What's that supposed to mean? (laughs) Everyone knows what that's supposed to mean.
1: Speaking of teas and coming to stores, soon on fumblingforstore.com, we've got a couple RE shirts we're going to roll out with. One of them has each one of our favorite characters on it with the RE Lurecast logo. So be on the lookout for that one. It's It's a really cool shirt. And Mr. X. And Mr. X. It was done by our. Wonderful artist on the team, the drunk bug. So be looking for that in the Fumbling Four store to come soon. I'm excited.
0: <laughs> I really wish his name was Doug.
1: <laughs> Our wonderful artist, Doug. <laughs> no,
0: Doug, the drunk pug.
1: Doug, the drunk pug. He's going to listen to this and go, Yep, change my name now. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ariel, what do you got for us in the news department? <coughs>
0: says I brought news. Did
1: you bring merch too?
0: No. Oh. I read an article.
1: Yeah, I see news. (laughs) Much like
0: I always do. And this one gave me the warm fuzzy feels inside, so I just want to share it with everyone. So this is from Nintendo Life, and it is Resident Evil and Silent Hill creators sit down for a chat. Oh? I know. Isn't that cute? (laughs)
2: You don't say that about two horror franchises getting
0: together. <laughs> yes, I do. Mm. So, in a rather lovely surprise, Resident Evil creator Shinji Mikami and Silent Hill creator Keichiro Toyama have got together to reminisce about the good old days when 3D gaming was just starting to take off and the survival horror genre was born. Both seem quite open about their respective experiences within the gaming industry, and it's clear that Mikami's involvement with the Resident Evil franchise inspired Toyama with his work on Silent Hill. Yep. So it posts a video of the encounter, but I just want to touch base on a few things they said, you know. So Toyama says obviously there was no point in simply imitating Resident Evil with Silent Hill it wouldn't make any sense to make a copy. There was a challenge to try making all the backgrounds with polygons. However, when asked about small details, we would simply tell them to copy Resident Evil. <laughs> and then Makami laughs and says, it's a famous technique when the director is busy. When you're just too busy, I did that myself in the past. Sure, just do the same thing as that. Then I would focus again on the bigger picture. <laughs> so... I just thought that was a fun, warm, fuzzy feeling inside about two Mm -hmm. amazing games creators just chit-chatting like they're just best friends.
1: It's commonly known that Silent Hill is a very lovingly a copycat in certain aspects of the Resident Evil franchise, as it's well known that... The director of the Silent Hill series took a lot of influence for Resident Evil and he openly says that in a lot of interviews like I owe all my success to the RE series and I I just love how these two companies or these two creators can get together and gush over each other's art
0: I know like I'm a huge fan of Silent Hill as well mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan and his name keeps popping up now I'm really hoping that there is something in the works for Silent Hill. Uh, Bring it back.
1: There may be. I'm going to keep my mouth shut on that one. We'll talk about it eventually.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I am looking forward to seeing something new Mm. with Silent Hill.
1: Well, on a different front, I too have brought merch from none other than GameStop. So on GameStop.com right now, you can go in And uh, Daniel, I believe you brought, last time you brought the tyrant statue. I believe so. It has been quite a many episodes. Mm -hmm. Well, now they're rolling out with yet again, another B.O.W. statue. And this one is none other than a fan favorite. Jillian. This one is none other than a fan favorite, The Liquor. So this is a 6.5 inch statue and it is a limited edition run from NumSkull and it will be priced at 9.99, no, it will be priced at 99.99, and you can pre-order it right now. It's, you know, potential release date at this moment is August 30th, 2022. So right around the corner. So if you're wanting to collect them all statue-wise, this one's for you. So, that's what I've brought to the corner. So, with that being said, I think it's time for us to go to the end of the episode. Yeah! So, here we are at the end of the episode. We still got two more things to talk about, BOWs and Easter eggs. So, it's time for Ariel to shut up. Oh, goodness. <laughs> It's time for Daniel to talk about B.O.W.'s. Daniel, what do you got? We will start with the Adjulae. The agile is a
2: feral or African wild dog which has been parasitized by one of Tricell's Type 2 Plogus. Parasite has deformed its head, turning the left and right sides into a new set of jaws for more powerful bites. The Adjulaes are currently the same appearance as the zombie dogs, but their ears are down instead of pointed, and their skin and their skin is completely gray. Also, their heads do split apart.
1: We do see that in four. I think it's just a parasite thing.
2: Yeah, it is. In this, mm-hmm. it's just a parasite, too, so it can feed. Yeah. But that is what I really have on those. I do hate fighting those in one of the super Like, as soon as you hear the music, you know they're coming.
1: Those, the dogs in any RE are, I will, hands down, I will through my dying day say that these are some of the most hardest enemies to beat in the RE series, just because they're agile and they are low to the ground. So it's hard to get a beat on them.
2: Yeah, because half time when I shoot at them with a shotgun or something, they still somehow Mm -hmm. move out of the way.
0: Really, they're a really hard enemy because they're super cute. And why would you shoot something super cute? Because
1: its face opened up and is going to eat me. (laughs)
2: Eh. Is it cute before the face opening or after? Both. I don't believe you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the next one I have, this is in the Lost in Nightmares DLC. And this is the blob, which is basically your, really your only enemy in the entire.
1: It's just a bowl of jelly.
2: Not in this case. (laughs) Physically, blobs showed signs of decay, not unlike that of zombies. Furthermore, their faces appeared to be mutated into a maw similar to that of a sea lamprey and their backs had increased size from muscle growth to the extent of needing a harness. This growth also had a yellow eye as it had been seen from behind, similar to the G-Vias creatures which served as a weak point. They possessed superior strength, able to carry anchors far larger than themselves and could lift enemies off the ground single-handedly. They may have heightened senses as the one of the blobs that was encountered by Chris Redfield and, Jim, yeah, and Jill Valentine was able to deduce that they were directly behind a breakable wall. They must have been talking to Mr. X for quite a while there. <laughs> the blobs, I mean, not not the characters. <laughs> not the
1: characters. <sighs> but that is what I have on that. So do we know what strain of the virus they stem from? I would say they're...
2: Maybe it's a mixture of the T virus and the G virus because they're in Oswell's European mansion.
1: That's what I'm thinking too. Is they're strain of T virus slash G virus infecties.
2: Because usually you don't see a lot of the T virus infecties with the like the eye, the mm-hmm. yellow weak point. Yeah. So that's why it could be. It could just be a G virus mutation. But yeah, usually it's you're not going to kill. Like it's going to mutate way further.
1: We're gonna have to look into this one further and get back to. Get back to the fans on it. Yes, fans want it.
2: <laughs> Alright, so next I have the Cephalo. The Cephalos appear as long, centipede like parasites with a spike bone protruded from its spine, which can be used as a weapon. I didn't know if you needed me to stop. Cephalo grow larger in size when their host Majini's head has been seriously damaged or destroyed, breaking through the neck to defend the rest of the host's body. At this point, they take complete control of the body's function, acting as a replacement brain. The Type 2 Plaga formed cephalo are more resistant to sunlight and may be encountered outside at daytime. Cephalos are incredibly resilient to gunfire, since most of the body is outside of the host when they come out further damage to the host body does a little to stop it. These are the ones that usually when you shoot the head, it looks like a big centipede-looking creature just sticking out of its neck. And they flail that part around to hit you if you get in close range.
0: Yup.
2: Alright, so next we have the Chainsaw magini, which is an which is a Maginny with an unusual adaptation of the Plaga Parasite, which has formed a perfect bond with the host, Greatly increasing their strength and durability to damage. The plaga causes them to harbor a great desire to kill on all non-infected humans. A chainsaw majini often appears as a man wearing color pants and a burlap sack on their head. Which has a single hole exposing a single bloodshot eye. Their weapon of choice is a bloodstained chainsaw. I would hope so if that's what they're called. Which they use to brutally kill their targets. But whose weight slows them down. Chunks of missing flesh appear in the host's torso, arms, and hands.
1: Somebody's not really good with that chainsaw.
0: (laughs) Well, I love the continuation of Chainsaw Guy with the burlap sack. Yeah, that's just you know, uh, you you know it's coming. (laughs) Ugh. Wow. wow. (laughs) My unnatural fear of chainsaws. Thank you, Resident Evil.
2: And you hear that laugh that he has as he's, as he's, you can maniacally know he's coming for you. So the next one isn't exactly a B.O.W. as per T-Virus or any type of virus means, but it is still an enemy in the game that can actually kill you, I believe in one hit. That is the crocodile. Just a crocodile. It's literally just a crocodile. Well, crocodiles, because there's more than one. But they dwell in waist-deep water and are capable of killing either of them with a single bite. They can be killed, although they only surface when prey is nearby and there are about 10 of them in the first area that you encounter them. Making it wiser to simply run past them, which is always fun. And in this game, they are very large, roughly 15 to 20 feet long.
0: Fun.
1: Which is I think about the average length of an actual crocodile.
2: I'm not a zoologist.
1: I'm not either, so don't quote me on that. And uh, if I'm wrong... I already did. Just let us know.
2: I quoted Aaron on it. That's coming (laughs) from Aaron. I'm quoting him.
1: No, I do like the fact that we finally, in an RE game, have just a normal animal that is a predator. (laughs) Like, it will kill you. It's just a normal animal. It has happened to me more than (laughs) once.
2: Oh, yeah, I can go get that treasure. Yeah, I didn't expect that crocodile to be there.
0: (laughs) Fun... All
2: right, next I have the the Duvalier. Oh, Duvalier. They are a mutant type of Type 3 Plaga, which emerges from its Magini body host by destroying the entire upper body. It appears as a large flower-like parasite with thick armor on the outside of its body. Its weak points are the fleshy tail that hangs off its back, which is the remains of the host's upper torso and ribcage and the fleshy core of the shell, which is only exposed when the Diwali is about to attack the player or if it's shot in the legs repeatedly. In addition to these and the usual weakness to bright light, a Diwali can be blown to pieces with a single hand grenade if the explosive hits the core. It is also the type of Plaga with the least appearances of all. I did notice it was pretty, pretty rare when it would appear, but mm-hmm. it would be like staggered. I would run into the... To follow more than I would run into the Divalia, which is fine because if he didn't have the weapons to kill the Divalia, mm-hmm. it was it could withstand attacks. Oh yeah. Let's see here. Next is one of Ariel's favorite, the Executioner Oh, Maginni. Yes,
1: oh.
0: yes, yes.
2: So the Executioner Magini was a human victim of the Type Two Plaga. Either by choice or by the parasitic influence, he joined the instigator Maginni's Rebellion in Kajuju, which saw the death of perhaps hundreds of perceived foreigners and traitors. And we got a little biography here, but I am not sure how much we actually know behind the man of this. Man's life before the Rebellion is unknown. When implanted with a plaga, he reacted differently, differently to its chemical secretions than other people. While enhanced strength was a common side effect, his was more radical than others. Furthermore, growth hormones led to a significant change in height, making him a towering figure among the other Maginni. By mid-January 2009, he had taken up the role of executioner in the instigator Maginni's rebellion, decapitating his enemies. The executioner was killed at the square when the audience spotted BSAA agents in the area. And to know it wasn't by the audience. It was by Chris and Shyamalan.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I think we
2: all know that. I would hope. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I have on him. So we don't know who he was before he was changed.
1: You know what I would find interesting for an RE game? If you played a survivor that actually got turned and you had to play as a zombie or some sort of like deviation for the rest of the storyline, like you slowly descend into like zombie madness until the end of the game where you are literally playing where you're eating survivors.
0: Yeah.
2: It probably had to be more of a multiplayer at that point. Mm-hmm. Or it'd be like Operation Raccoon City where it doesn't, it's not canon. Because <laughs> then you could throw heroes in there and then, oh, mm-hmm. hey, you killed the hero. Yep.
0: It'd be like Left 4 Dead when you get to play yeah. the other things, the tank and yep. everything else. But, yeah, I love the Executioner. Him and Mr. X, my favorite.
1: We'll see.
0: We'll, we'll see. <laughs> That's it like, is.
1: Oh, gosh.
2: So, next we have the Giant Maginny, which these are the ones that are mostly, like, the tribal ones that you see.
1: What did I just click on? How many more you got?
2: Yes. Oh, no. Dude, I've still got, like, one, two, three, four, five. It's
1: just going to be a
0: longer episode.
2: Twelve. Yeah. <sighs> These individuals reacted much more positive positively to the plagus than most, causing their bodies to grow until they are about three meters, roughly nine foot ten tall, with proportional increase in strength. Equally unknown is why this has only ever been recorded in infected members of the African Tapia tribe. Giant Magini wear elaborate bulletproof headdresses, making leg and back shots the best route to take them when fighting them. They are armed with enormous spike clubs made of the bones of their enemies, which they swing with tremendous force. You can tell if one is near when they make a ululating. I said that wrong, didn't I?
0: Ululating at their. Ululating.
2: You can tell if one is near when they make a ululating high-pitched call. Another way to know when one is approaching is to listen for the sound of the rings on their ankles jingling like bells. They, like the other members of the Paya tribe, have a tremendous jumping ability, meaning they do not require ladders to get around. That's really all I have on them. (laughs) To me, I always thought they were like the, the leaders of the tribe. That's what I took it as. The Kapepko... Is a type 2 Plaga variant with the ability to fly. They erupt from, they erupt from their Maginny host body when damage is taken and fly up to escape further injury. They are strong enough to attack helicopters, as evident by a pack of Capeco down in Kirk Matheson's helicopter. And that's really all I have on them. Next up, I have. The Liquor Beta. This one, there isn't much difference, but unlike the standard liquor, this variation is created from, by Tricell. So it is blind still, and they do travel in groups. Injection of the progenitor virus led to the creature gain the ability to reduce at a fast... To reduce. Injection of the progenitor virus led to the creature gain the ability to reproduce at a fast rate. This fertility rendered it more of an actual animal. One major difference from the original is the creature's vastly increased muscular mass as well as improved sense of smell. One new weakness exhibited by the liquor beta was an exposed heart located in the center of its chest. A simple knife can end a beta's life with a single stab to this organ. But you have to get it on its back first. That's what I have on the liquor. Next, I have the Maginni, which those are just people who have become infected. Basically, a person becomes a Magini from one or two ways. The first means is by injection with a plaga egg, which will take several days to mature, gaining influence over the person as time goes on. The second means is by ingestion, whereas a mature plaga is forced down the person's throat. In either case, they will take over the central nervous system by moving to the medulla oblongata. In the latter case, the takeover is almost immediate, measured in laboratory tests as short as 10 seconds.
1: Holy cow.
2: Other than that, you have different kind of variants, but mostly it's they're a lot like the Ganado as far as that goes. But it seems like they're more erratic. They don't think is, as well and as precise as the Ganado did. But that's what I really have on the Maginny. There's not much to go into on them. Let's see here. You do also encounter the Tapaya, which are another race, or not another race, sorry. You encounter the Tapaya, which are a tribe living in the African area there. Next, I have the Plaga C, which we had in Resident Evil 4. But in Resident Evil 5, you have the version of them called the Bui Kichwa, which stems from the Swahili words for big spider and head. So the spider-like Plagas that you fight is the Plaga C version in Razima 5. Next I have the Popok Urimu, which resembles a large mutated overgrown bat with an insect thorax as a tail with several legs attached to it. Is probably the result of splicing together genes from bats and silkworms before infecting the resulting creature with Plaga Type Two. The entire body is extremely resilient, with only the with only the sticky silk spewing undersides spewing underside of its tail, where the parasite emerges, being vulnerable to the player's attacks. It has four wings, similar to that of the Capepco, suggesting that the variety of Bow was the only one mentioned to have been improved by the inclusion of bat DNA and you encounter this thing twice it was not not a great creature to fight that's what I
0: no not at all
2: that's what I have on that BOW next up I have the reapers The reaper is a cockroach mutated into a giant humanoid form similar to the Chimera BOW. However, it is not part of any bioweapons project, neither from Umbrella nor Tricell. It is a completely random and unprecedented mutation of common African cockroaches following exposure to the Ouroboros virus. So this is one of the first BOWs that has actually been entirely created via the Ouroboros virus. Because most of the stuff you have from T-Virus and Plagas, this is completely, it's a new thing. Yeah. According to a file, the exposure happened due to a fire in the missile area first floor of the Tricell African Research Facility. Standing upright at around 7 feet, the Reaper has two pairs of limbs, uses arms, and one pair uses legs. However, it can still use all three pairs to crawl around if needed. Its arms and a huge jagged claws that can be used to slash and stab its prey. Which, if you get hit, you die instantly. If it, you get like a full-on strike from this thing, it does a cutscene and you die. It earned its name from the way it disemboweled whole squads of armed Maginie sent to capture a specimen. Its rigid carapace protects it from explosive damage, and it has powerful regenerative ability that enables it to quickly restore lost limbs. It also has the ability to generate a chemical vapor that can interfere with vision, making it harder for attackers to get a beat on it. The Reaper's main weakness are the luminescent white sacs on its body, presumably important organs externalized by, externalized by its mutation. Damaging these sacs will bypass its otherwise excellent durability and enable relatively quick and efficient termination. I did hate fighting them. As soon as you heard the sound of one dropping to the floor, it was time to get away. Of course it was. It's a roach. (laughs) Giant, walking, humanoid roach. Let the roaches hit the floor.
0: Let
2: the roaches hit the floor. (laughs) Okay. So next we have the U8, which is one of the bosses you fight, the giant spider. The U8 was a large, darkly colored, genetically engineered arthropod born out of research into Las Plagas. It was a hybrid creature comprised of the refined DNA of multiple organisms, specifically the DNA of shelled organisms, the DNA of shelled organisms, which was then infected with an unknown strain of Plaga. Size-wise, the U8 was some tens of meters tall, and its pincer legs over three meters and its pincer legs over 3 meters in length, which it used as a weapon in close combat. These pincer attacks were not especially quick, but they were powerful enough to pierce the armor of a tank. Luckily, we didn't drive a tank. (laughs) Adding to its offensive power were several flying BOWs resembling mosquitoes which resided in the part of the U-8's abdomen originally intended for the maturation of eggs and an unaltered anthropod specimen. These flying BOWs were not larval U-8s but completely different creatures entirely and attacked by flying into and piercing their target. The U-8 was also well equipped defensively as the thick carapace had an unparalleled durability and was shown to be resistant to a direct hit from RPGs in tests. As a result, in a close quarter one-on-one fight, the U-8 was an overwhelmingly powerful adversary, but when it had to combat more than one opponent at a time, its larger size became somewhat of a liability. Its considerable bulk made it difficult to transport to target locations. It also left it exposed to long-range attacks by multiple opponents, though it could compensate for this weakness by using the flying BOWs in much the same way an aircraft carrier uses jet fighters. The u 8 size was also a detriment because it meant that it required massive amounts of sustenance to maintain its functionality. As such, U-8s were not suitable for long-term assignments. According to Tricel's business information, the U-8 was most effective as security for a facility or when used in attacks of limited time. By far, the biggest drawback suffered by the U-8, though, was that due to its being designed to reach a large size very rapidly, its quick growth often bred exploitable imperfections in its carapace. These imperfections were limited to certain areas of the carapace, but a direct attack on this area would severely damage the U8. To try to remedy this newer to try and remedy this, a newer model, the U8 Prime, was later devised by Tricell with a multi-layer carapace, which granted it even greater durability. Another model, featuring a lighter weight carapace in hopes of reducing resource usage, was also conceived, but ultimately shelved when the loss of offensive and defensive ability was determined to be too great. So we only ever encounter one, and at this point it says that there's at least two others, one with a greater defensive ability.
1: Oh my god!
2: And the other one is shelved? But what does that mean for Tricell slash umbella?
0: waiting for the go button to be pushed.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's what I have on the U8. It is one of my funner bosses to fight, but I do, I hate, I love and hate it because I like fighting it, but I hate that you're in such an enclosed space. You don't have a lot of movement. But it is still a fun fight. Shoving grenades into its mouth. (laughs) No, thank you. Well, yeah, I really wouldn't get close to one if it was real. Next, I have the Aerobos Ahiri. It is a specific manifestation of the virally genetic, the virally created giant Aerobos creature that is the result of Excella's mutation. So when Wesker was like, "Hey, I infected you. You're gonna become one now." <laughs> was created when the Auroboros virus re- rejected the DNA of Axella, mutating her body instead of making her a superhuman. Our Wesker seemed to be fully aware that this would be the result of her exposure to the virus, as not only did he abandon her on the deck of her tanker after injection, but he also left her in the vicinity of a large pile of dead magini, which Ahiri consumed to grow to its monstrous size. Basically, it was nearly invulnerable to normal weapons, and Chris and Sheva had to use a satellite laser device just to take it out, <laughs> as it was pretty large on the ship. If you've seen and fought this thing, you definitely know what, what it is. It's one of the biggest BOWs, I think, that's ever come about. They're going to work up more now that Capcom knows they can do it. <laughs> And the last one I have is the herbros Makono. was a me- was a specific manifestation of the virally created herbrose creature birthed from an anonymous test subject in a tri-cell laboratory. It is possible that Makono's transformation was triggered by Excella, who was watching from an enclosed observation deck so that the creature created with the herbros virus rejected the DNA of its host, would kill BSAA agents Sheva Alomar and Chris Redfield. It was far more dangerous than the Ouroboros test subject, being much more aggressive and having two cores instead of one. Kona was defeated through the exploitation of the creature's sensitivity towards extreme heat. The laboratory contained a flamethrower and a refueling station originally designed to destroy biohazardous material in case of a leak. Redfield and Alamar used the flamethrower to weaken Makono and then shot at his exposed vital organs. Shot at his exposed vital organs. Though you can take it out with normal weapons fire, it's just a lot harder. That is what I have on pretty much all the BOWs in this game.
1: A lot of BOWs to go around this one. So we're done with BOWs. It's time for some Easter eggs and I have some doozies. You ready for these? I might be. I'm not. (laughs) So the first Easter egg up is a list of Easter eggs actually involving the same game. So in RE5, Dead Rising was paid homage on several occasions the first couple occasions of this you can find in chapters 1-1 and 2-1 in the Kennison Express. Now, this is a sign above one of the train stations, and this is a direct reference to the photo store in Dead Rising. Another direct reference to the Dead Rising franchise is the Paula Hopkins album poster. You can find this on a wall as you and Sheva are walking in through the streets at the very beginning of the game in 1-1. Da- or in 1-1. It was a poster that was found in many stores in Dead Rising. Another couple little nods to the Dead Rising series was the newspaper that you find in one of the offices it is the Willamette Park newspaper. And this is a direct quote to not only the name of the town, but the name of the mall in the Dead Rising franchise. And the last one is when you get to the victim list of names, Frank and Isabella are on the list of names. This is a direct reference to Frank and Isabella from the Dead Rising franchise. I'll
2: have to pay attention when I play the game again to see all that, because I probably wasn't paying too much attention to notice.
1: (laughs) So the next Easter egg on our list is none other than with Wesker. So the first thing to deal with Wesker is that originally he wasn't supposed to be the only big baddie. We were supposed to get a tyrant in this game. But later on, the tyrant idea was scrapped in favor of Wesker being the big baddie because they did not want to take too much light away from Wesker in this game. Another thing that we had with Wesker in this was his original concept design for his costume mirrored that of his original costume design in the previous games. But again, that was scrapped in favor of a more carbon fiber outfit that they could easily justify it to prevent shrapnel damage. So that's all we got on Wesker. Let's talk about Excella. Now, Excella was originally supposed to be the secretary to the Tricel CEO. But the creators liked her character so much that they managed, they actually progressed her to the position of CEO. And her original outfit was more conservative and was less celebrity-esque, but was later changed to more of a celebrity appearance to give her that appearance of an elite class. But her original conservative outfit, or more conservative outfit if you will, was actually repurposed into none other than Sheba's business outfit. So that is what we have on that little Easter egg. So the next Easter egg I have is actually a two-parter because it talks about characters that were originally cut from the game. So we were originally supposed to have a merchant in this game. And it was supposed to follow the same concepts and linear storyline like the RE4 Merchant. And his name? Marchant. Marchant the Merchant. Uh, th- when you go through and look through all the Danny mining, it's literally just a bare-bones model of Chris Redfield painted orange with kanji on the chest. However, the coding heavily, ha- the coding heavily insinuates that the first merchant in the game we run into, who gives us our guns, was actually supposed to be a merchant throughout the game, but was later swapped out for an item screen. A little disappointed in that one. <laughs> well, somebody's got to be supplying us. <laughs> behind the scenes, behind the scenes. The other character that was scrapped was none other than Barry. The original concept for the game was going to be that Barry and Jill would often render aid to Chris As he ventured through this campaign. But again. Was scrapped. In favor of the new storyline we have. So we also have a movie reference in this game. From none other than the predator. The final lines. From Josh and Jill. Are. Jill says. About Doug after he's killed. He was a good soldier. Josh's response was he was my friend. This is a direct quote from the movie Predator.
0: I really love Predator.
1: (laughs) (laughs) If you don't believe me, go look it up. You'll see. So the next little thing we had was zombies were cut from this game. Originally, they were supposed to have zombies that would at the very opening part of the game, a train car would crash, releasing a horde of zombies into the village. And the entire vibe of the game was supposed to be different. We were actually gonna have desert levels and all kinds of Uroboros were supposed to be boss monsters. And we were gonna have sand zombies. You heard that right, zombies coming out of the sand. That would have been cool.
0: That would have definitely added to the horror effect of it.
1: Oh, yeah. Though this was all the ideas, the reason these things were scrapped was Desert Lands were scrapped because they didn't offer a whole lot of cover for zombies to pop out of other than sand zombies that come out of the ground. But after a while, that would have become repetitive and you know, boring. The other reason No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say there
2: is technically there is some zombies in the game. In the factory level when you're on the conveyor. Yeah. yeah. But they're not the same. They just mm. attack you. That's that's it.
1: You don't really get like bit. And yeah. Have a risk of T-Rise infection. You don't get the same vibe from those guys. But the other reason a lot of these ideas are scrapped is because time constraints and they wanted to have a different direction with a lot of the gameplay and it just wouldn't fit. So we got Oroboros as our main enemies. So that is that for the zombie cut. The next we have is Jill. In the original concept for the game, Jill was actually supposed to be in a tricell container that you would release her from, not captured by Wesker. And she was supposed to be under some sort of mind control device that would actually go on her head. But in the artwork you can find in the art book, the description of why it was mounted to her chest is purely because it was sexier. It is literally in the artwork. Yeah. It's extremely disappointing. Another little tidbit with Jill was this game was actually supposed to have a multi-ending effect, meaning that character decisions would actually give you different endings. And in one of the endings, Jill was actually supposed to die and stay dead. So I'm kind of glad we didn't get that. Because Jill is a badass. <laughs> so, the next little Easter egg we have here is Sheva. The first thing is, Sheva is actually left handed, and that is why she is on the left side of the screen. Another is that originally Sheva was supposed to be only an NPC there to aid Chris. This was supposed to be a single player style game. What was originally scrapped due to the demand for multiplayer games on the market at the time. The last thing we have a Sheva is the tattoo that is on her shoulder is actually Swahili for Hero. And I thought that was a pretty cool detail to add in. Well,
2: after the game, she definitely is a hero.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> so we talked about it briefly. But originally, the original concept for five is quite a bit different. Our enemy was going to be zombies. We're going to have a lot of sand levels. And we were actually supposed to get a T-Virus variant via a new T-Virus variant zombie in here, as well as our tyrant that we also love in these games. And Chris was actually going to go visit a few different sites like a shipwreck, a different kind of T-virus facility in Africa and Chris would actually fall into a pit to be separated from Sheva at some point in the game. But all these were scrapped due to different reasons, some which we don't know about. <coughs> at the beginning of the game in another Easter egg, you can actually look up in a window at the very beginning upon entrance and see none other than the agitator preparing himself to rally the crowd there is also another oh so easily missed Majini and this one is our boxing Majini if you climb up the first ladder in the very first first accessible broken ladder as Sheva and look through a window directly across the left hand side you'll see a zombie not a zombie you'll see a Majini attempting to shadow box, which I thought was hilarious, especially in the video that I found it from where he got sniped in the head. (laughs) So there is a RE4 callback in this game, and it is actually really easily missed, especially if you are not a adamant mercenaries mode player. There is actually a double chainsaw on one of the tables in one of the buildings, which is a reference to the RE4 mercenary chainsaw uh, wielding man who wields the double chainsaw in a certain mission we also have a a little comical easter egg which is the toilet at one point in the storage container area you can find a some sort of like blue box on the ground and it will give you a question mark prompt if you click that question mark prompt you'll either fling the door open as sheva or Chris Or you'll knock on the door as Sheba or Chris Upon this, the door will fling open And you'll see a surprise Majinny in a toilet
0: You know, in Resident Evil 4 There's a toilet guy to you Is there? Yeah, it's in um In like Mendez's house When you go down to the bottom floor Oh, you're right in that hidden door If you mm-hmm. bust it open, there's a dude using a urinal <laughs>
1: So we got some toilet callbacks here. <laughs> so the next callback to RE4 is the chair. In RE4, if you remember we talked about, you could sit in a chair and look like a regal badass. Well, you can do it again in five as either Shiva or Chris. And you can do this twice. The first chair you can sit in is in the lab room and it will give you a different animation for each character. The second chair is in the control room right in front of the console as the alarms are going off you can sit in this chair and it'll give you different animations as well and our second to last easter egg here is Fox News in chapter 6-2 when you get to the computer monitor room if you look at the bottom right computer monitor very very hazy you can make out the Fox News logo on the table of the broadcasting room I wonder how much money Fox had to pay to get that logo in there. (laughs) And our last Easter egg in the Lost Nightmares, you can activate a classic RE game mode if you look at the front door and prompt it three different times. The first two times you'll get a prompt that basically says we can't go back that way. The third, however, you'll get a question mark prompt and when clicked, You'll stare at the door and the camera will pan back to the classic fixed camera mode. And I did not know about this one until I looked at Beast Rigs. It's the only one I didn't know about. Well, I sat in the lab chair
2: before in that one, but I'd never sat in the the control room chair. Mm -hmm. So I didn't
1: know that you could sit in the control. I didn't think about trying to do that. The animations are completely different in both chairs as well. Which I thought was a nice little touch.
2: <laughs> Should I can't. Did they say something when they did it?
1: Uh, yes. Um, Chris said something about he doesn't want to know what happened in the chair when you were in the lab. And in the other one, I can't remember what the, uh, the prompt was that he gave, but it was different.
2: He's probably imagining wearing his sailor outfit <laughs> from the what was it from the unlockables that we didn't get?
1: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, goodness. So, yeah, that's all my Easter eggs. And that wraps us up at the end of RE5. So you know what that means.
2: Oh, that means that was the end of
1: it. Terrible. <laughs> I like five. I think it's time for us to give some reviews. Oh. Oh. So we're going to go with Ariel first. What do you think? Oh, I get to go
0: first You time? do? Well... I have to give this a five executioners out of five.
1: Is it because the executioner's in it?
0: Would you let me get my review? (laughs) Anyways, I loved, loved, loved the storyline. Like I have said before, I'm a huge storyline fan. I love the story. And I loved this. The only issue I had with this game was I felt it was a little short. It wasn't awfully short, but it was short. Err. That's the only gripe I have about it, but that isn't enough for me to knock my rating down because I love 5. Not as much as 4, but still a really good game.
2: Daniel? I also give it 5 out of 5, and that's also one for because it's Resident Evil 5. That makes it (laughs) ironic. It also has Rebecca in it. That's uh, a side thing. But that's uh, in Mercenaries mode. Yeah. I don't play that too often. But, uh, no, I do think it was a little short, too. But I do like a lot of the different B.O.W.'s that they put in. The, mostly like the non-plugless ones. The ones that are more creatures than anything. Like, mm-hmm. the Bat and U8. I really do like... Like I said, I do like U8. So, And I think they still have potential. Because I don't believe that facility got destroyed... Did it? The Tricel facility? Uh, I can't quite remember, to be honest. I don't think it did. So, there's there's unknown amounts of people potentially still in there. Mm-hmm. So, uh,
1: who knows if there's not a Wesker
0: clone. <laughs> yep.
1: So, I'm actually going to be fair with my reviews. I was, I'm i always fair.
0: I was fair with mine, too.
1: i was just kidding. So... I'm actually going to have to give this a four out of five. And there is a very specific reason here. It is a wonderful game. It has a great storyline, but it could have been better. If they had stuck with the original, I feel like if they had stuck with the original choices they made for the game, not all of them, but most of them, it definitely would have had a different feel and would have been a lengthier game. Those are my two biggest complaints. I feel like they changed too much too fast in this game which made it feel a little different and they also didn't give us enough playtime with this game I mean you could literally finish this fairly quickly even while getting all the unlockables and doing everything you need to do Um, so I feel like it could have been a little longer but that doesn't make it a bad game it's just something that I feel Capcom could have improved on
0: yeah, well, like I said, that was the only gripe I had mm-hmm. about it Was that it could have been longer It yeah. should have been longer But I still, I loved the fight at the end with Wesker mm-hmm. I loved traveling through all this new, you know, the new place I loved the storyline of it all From start to finish, it was bam, 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 bam
1: Yeah, it was, and like I said, it was a good game They didn't change too much. I mean, it wasn't too much of a drastic jump from, you know, four to five. You know, we had a... uh, We had a parasite in four. You know, it wasn't too much of a drastic jump. But I feel like not enough was explained in this jump. I feel like with five especially, a lot of things had to be given to us through either extra, you know, art books or you know online reads you know a lot of information for backstory stuff had to be given to us elsewhere i felt and it did feel like a little a little bit of a rushed game so it's a great game go get it go play it enjoy it it's still a four out of five come on so that is the end of this episode Which brings me to the last thing I'd like to share with all you dear listeners. This isn't the only podcast we do. (laughs) What? What? So for a long time, we've tried to keep out our own personal drops here. But uh, we, we feel like we're not doing anybody any favors if we don't drop it at least once. So we do have eight other podcasts besides this one. And a couple of them are Lorecast. So as you know, I'm sure by now, we also do the Legend of Zelda lore cast. And in addition to that, I do, with my co-host Sergio, the Dungeons & Dragons lore cast. We also have a few TTRPG shows. Ariel, what do we got?
0: Well, we have, you know, my personal favorite, since I am the host of it, Call (laughs) of Cthulhu Mythos Mysteries. We also have Fumbling For and the Almighty Crit Mm D&D. We have Cyberpunked which is a cyberpunk red live play podcast. We have Knights of Darkness, which is a World of Darkness podcast where the first season we're doing right now is Vampire the Masquerade. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. And I host that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that is Daniels. And we have SCP, Delta Green, where we use the Delta Green rules and play an SCP spin on it. Mm Mm-hmm. So wonderful TTRPGs that we do, a lot of fun, hilarious. It's
1: great. We also have the Avatar Legends podcast.
0: Yes, which we it's, I'm also the host of, but mm-hmm. uh, we're postponing it until I get the rules down. I just gotten the PDFs yep. for the whole thing. Yep. So, yeah, that'll be coming back soon. Stay tuned.
1: So with all that being said And some mighty mighty info drops at the end I think it's time for us to bid Our dear listeners a farewell So until next time We'll see you later Bye Bye there Thanks for joining us tonight On the Resident Evil Lurecast We hope you enjoyed it If you did, tell a friend Leave a comment and review. If you want to keep chatting with us about all things Resident Evil, you can find us on the Robots Radio Discord. You can also chat with us at RELureCast on Twitter. Till next time, stay safe out there. And remember, we might have something that might interest you, stranger.